Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses warped your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. I am one of your co-hosts. My name is BJ Colangelo, and I am here with the always beautiful, absolutely exquisite, and absolutely wonderful... Harmony Colangelo. You're so complimentary to me because I'm your wife. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm a straight-up wife simp. I don't pretend to even act like I'm anything but that. But yes, we are a team of wives here to talk to you about one of the best subgenres of film. If you're listening for the first time, which you more than likely are because this is our first episode, um, you may know Harmony and I from our work in the horror genre specifically, but this podcast is not about horror. Sure, there may be some crossover in future episodes, but Harmony, what kind of movies are we talking about? We're talking about movies that I did not watch very many of growing up, because we're talking about teen girl movies. And Harmony, why did you not watch a lot of teen girl movies growing up? Because I was a teen boy and living in suburban Ohio, if you watch teen girl movies as a teen boy, you get ostracized by the community. That's very, very true. Because as I'm sure will come up throughout the course of this podcast, um, there are a lot of differences in the way that teenagers are socialized, depending on which gender identity they fall into at that time. So I am a cis woman talking from the perspective of somebody who grew up on a lot of these films and have deep, deep nostalgia for them. And Harmony, my wife, how do you feel about teen girl movies? I have mixed feelings depending on the movie. <laughs> and those are the kind of feelings that we are going to dive into to sort of uh, explore how we feel about these films, um, which ones can stay in the test of time, which one of them um, which are, are going to make us fight. Uh, we'll, we'll see how we feel about it. Um, but since it's the first episode, we wanted to start off with with a bang. We wanted to, to take one of the heavy hitters of the teen girl subgenre and focus on that. Before we really dive in, I do want to take a quick second to acknowledge that these are f- movies that can be enjoyed by anyone of any age and of any gender identity, but if we were to pretend as if these specific movies were not trying to target a particular demographic, that would just be doing a disservice and, quite frankly, being pretty dishonest about the intentions behind some of these movies. I think that's that's pretty fair. I, 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 would say, <laughs> think, I don't want to say that it would be an outright lie, because there are plenty of people who can see themselves and identify um, with the characters. I mean, we're both queer people. We've been doing that pretty much our entire lives, because... You have to force yourself into seeing people since you aren't going to see yourself. Exactly. We're not going to find any uh, outward representation of ourselves. So, you know, we recognize that there could be plenty of people who may see themselves in these characters. So when we call these teen girl movies, we're not trying to be exclusionary. We're just identifying that when these films were made, the target audience they were trying to hit were teen girls. I mean, they star teen girls for the most part. Well, no, a lot of them, they're like 24 and pretending they're 15. (laughs) But They're supposed to be teens. Exactly. So today's heavy hitter, the one that we're going to start things off with, is Amy Heckerling's absolute classic, Clueless. Ew! Get off of me! Ugh, as if! And our synopsis of Clueless, for those who have never seen it, 
is the shallow, rich, and socially successful Cher, played by Alicia Silverstone, is at the top of her Beverly Hills High School's pecking scale. Seeing herself as a matchmaker, Cher first coaxes two teachers into dating each other. Emboldened by her success, she decides to give hopelessly klutzy and clueless new student Ty, played by the late Brittany Murphy, a makeover. When Ty becomes more popular than she is, Cher realizes that her disapproving ex-stepbrother Paul Rudd was right about how misguided she was and falls for him. All right, so Harmony, before we start to pick apart this movie, I want to know what your sort of exposure was to Clueless until we sat in the living room and watched it together. I have seen Clueless before. Okay. A number of... On our long list of topics we would like to address one day, I have seen some of them, though... In general, I'd say it's been since at least high school. Okay. I probably saw this at the right age to have seen it, probably roughly like a sophomore, junior Mm -hmm. for the first time. And going in, I was like, oh, I remember this. It's very cut and dry. And as we're watching it, I realize I really only remember the first half of the movie. (laughs) And then that she ends up with Paul Rudd at the end. So I'm sitting there going, I don't remember this Christian subplot. I don't don't remember... (laughs) I don't remember this. I remember the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones were there because this soundtrack is a banger. But I I had some mixed memories, I guess. I, I just completely spaced out on all of the character development and only remembered the hip 90s slang and killer wardrobes. Do you, by chance, and this is kind of a tall order, but do you remember what your feelings about this movie were when you saw this in high school? I thought it was fine. Yeah, just just fine. It was fine. Okay. I was like, this is okay. I just, I, yeah, whatever. I kind of, being that I don't remember it that much, I'm assuming I probably caught it on TV and didn't, uh, didn't take a lot of it to like personal heart. Okay. At the time. Okay. That I think that that's. I think for a lot of these movies, this might be where some of the exposure comes from. Um, I know when I saw Clueless for the first time, this was definitely this was a sleepover movie. For sure. I can see that. Yeah, this is a movie marathon sleepover movie. We're going to paint fingernails and braid our hair and watch and watch Clueless. And then have sexy pillow fights. Because that's a thing that happens. I probably shouldn't use sexy. You were like 15. <laughs> For this movie, it was probably closer to like 11. So it's cool, even worse. Cool, even less sexy. <laughs> it's even worse. Um, so... Other than your personal exposure, um, what do you know of Clueless in the sense of, like, its legacy? Like, if you were just shooting shot in the dark, like, what what do you know about Clueless? What do you know? Uh, when I think of the biggest teen movies of all time, I'd say this is probably a top five for teen girls in particular. Okay. Like, I think this is up there with things like The Breakfast Club... Heather's Mean Girls, like that seems to be, it's it's in that tier. Okay, so you would consider this like this is classic this teen is, girl movie. This is this is a generation defining thing as okay. present by its its popularization of the the Valley Girl slang, as I make air quotes, mm-hmm. which I think is is very funny because all of the whatevers and ads as if gag me with a spoon type terms. They come out of this movie, which makes it a little more cringy to go back to, because it just feels really dated and not trend-setting as it was. Mm-hmm. But it's even funnier, because Cher's not from the Valley. Right. I mean, like, obviously, Valley Girl from the 80s is a movie that exists. But when I think modern audiences or, you know, millennial and, and Gen Zers think about what is quote-unquote Valley Girl slang, they're thinking about Clueless... And she's not from the Valley. And, like, she's that's from a... from Beverly Hills, right? Yeah, she's from Beverly Hills. And that's, like, a big bone of contention of, like, you know, Paul Rudd at one point is, like, you're offended if people see you, uh, think that you live on the wrong end of Sunset or whatever. Uh, <laughs> after... Regional humor. <laughs> but, like, it's a it, it's a good joke. I mean, because Cher's being kind of uh, discriminatory in, in that moment. But we'll, we'll tackle that bit in pieces later. Um, 
So, yeah, so I think we've got a pretty good idea of how we're feeling about Clueless in a nutshell. So the first the first category that I want us to sort of jump into are our main characters. And in conclusion, may I please remind you that it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. Thank you very much. So obviously our first main character is Cher. Um, the description that I got for this movie I got from Fandango and I'm gonna be real, I don't fully agree with them calling her shallow and calling her um, kind of ditzy. Um, how would you describe Cher? I think that she has like a grasp on who she wants to be and like the change she wants to affect as evident by like her opening um, debate I don't know, what, what would it be, a yes, piece, her, an argument? Yeah, her, her debate in, uh, in... in... In Wallace Shawn's class? Yes. <laughs> yes. Her argument with that is, like, totally founded and, like, morally right, but it's also speaking from a very privileged, specific perspective for mm -hmm. her to, like, make a simile out of. Okay. And I think that that's where, for most people that go, oh, this is vapid, this is, this is dumb, but that's, like, saying that, you know having the plot points of Legally Blonde based around ditzy blonde things like perms is unfair. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. And I think that the the Elle Woods and Legally Blonde comparison is, is a pretty f easy one to make with Cher and Clueless because I don't think that Cher is shallow. I think she does care. But I think when you grow up in this very particular sort of lifestyle like these are just certain truths that I, I think are a little unavoidable um you know and like when you're 15 it's like what, what's 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 the adage you're supposed to say right about what you know you only know so many things when you grow up in beverly hills and you're 15 exactly and I think this can be attributed as well to a point that you brought up earlier about how in these movies, a lot of these characters who are supposed to be playing teenagers are not teenagers. And no. Alicia Silverstone was 19 years old when she was trying to play 15. And while that's a lot better than, say, something like Greece, where people in their 30s are playing high school students. Where everyone's going gray, basically. Right. <laughs> if they weren't slicking it back with <laughs> dye. But it's uh, but it still makes it hard, I think, sometimes for people to remember that this character is a child. So they look at her and they view her as an adult, and therefore they expect her to act and have sort of these these mindsets um, that an adult would have. And I think there's these really nice juxtapositions thrown when we meet Josh, Paul Rudd's character, um, who looks exactly the same. No, he's got he's got thicker eyelashes, which makes him look vaguely eyelinery and so hunky. <laughs> but for the most part, Paul Rudd pretty much looks exactly the same. And uh, he's he's, you know, the the college boy who is now leaving behind sort of that like vapidity of high school because now he's reading Nietzsche by the pool yeah, and he's, growing a he's, goatee. He's turning off Beavis and Butthead that Cher's watching so he can watch CNN coverage of war in the Middle East. Right, exactly. So I think there's this really nice kind of example where, you know, you might look at Cher and be like, oh, she's watching cartoons. But in reality, it's like, yeah, she's watching cartoons because she's fucking 15 years old. Like, of course she is. And, you know, I'm 30 and you're 29. Thank and you for having to think about it. I did have to think about it for a second. Um, but we spend a good chunk of our of our time here in, in quarantine um, watching cartoons. Granted, yeah. most of it's like adult animation, like Venture Bros and King of the Hill. Ah, my jams. But, like, we also watched all of Avatar, The Last Airbender, and The Legend of Korra, so, like... Well, that's because you had... you never saw them. I know, and I needed to. Okay, cool. So, I also kind of have, like, a middle finger for people who shame, like, animation as an art form, because, like, mm. like there's plenty to learn from. And, like, Cher even mentions it when he's making fun of her watching Ren and Stimpy. She's like, it's completely existential. And... He wow. makes fun of her because he goes like, oh, you don't even know what that means. And she doesn't. But she's right. But she's right. Ren is to be is existential. So you know what? She gets she gets a point for that. Um, so that's our that's our share. And we kind of touched on, on Josh a little bit. Um, how would you say about like Dion? Who's Dion in this world? Dion's like 
her, I would, her best friend. Like, that's, I was gonna say, like, no, she just definitely is. Mm -hmm. Like, she takes a back seat to, in terms of the plot, once Brittany Murphy is introduced. Mm -hmm. Because I'm just gonna call her Brittany Murphy. And not by <laughs> You're her not gonna call name. her Ty. <laughs> I'm not gonna call her Ty. She's just Brittany Murphy. Like, uh, Cher's story, since this is about her, obviously, it is more focused on how that relates to Ty than Dion. But I think she's a, probably got her shit together more than anybody in, of, of that friend group. I would agree with that. And I think that what's what sucks about Dion's character is that she falls under this archetype of the black best friend where her story, you know, does take kind of a backseat um, in order to push shares forward. Um, but the one thing that I do enjoy about the Dion character is, yeah, I think she's a lot of times kind of the voice of reason, um, which again, that can be inherently problematic in itself. Um, because it's coming from the, the black best friend role. Mm -hmm. Um, we can stem that to sort of like magical Negro tropes of like, of course she's the voice of reason. Um, but Dion does have a very nice side story with, Murray. Oh. How do you Turk. feel? I was going to say, yeah, how do you feel, Murray? Because I know you're a big Scrubs I, I love Scrubs Donald Faison. He's, like, so... It's, like, it's weird seeing him in movies like this and... What's the House Party teen movie that he's in the band? And he has the cowboy hat. With, like, Seth Green and them. Can't hardly wait. That one! It's weird to see him in, like, these pre-Scrubs roles because... He's he's Turk. He's always been Turk to me because I only vaguely remember him in this movie because he's only in probably like five or six scenes and maybe only like two in the first half, which is the parts I remember. But seeing them have a freak out at like a party where he's shaving his head and going like, oh my God, how could you do that? When I only know him as bald <laughs> is like really weird. But I really like their dynamic. It's like they bicker and like they kind of, they fight a lot and he calls her woman, which is, again sounds natural because I watch Scrubs. But they have, I think, the best relationship of everybody. Like it's a lot, it's a give and take and they bicker because they're teenagers, but they communicate really well. And I, I, I like them together. Like, they work really well together. I think so, too. And we'll dive in a little bit deeper into their relationships in, in a little bit. Okay, and of our last sort of main character here, we have Brittany Murphy's Ty. How do you feel about Ty? I probably... If I were to relate to somebody in this movie, it would probably be her. Because she's the dork. Like, she's not, like, a nerd dork, but she's not, like, cool. <laughs> she's she's a, li a, li a little schluppy. She's a little... doesn't quite understand how to be, I don't know, an, an upper-class high schooler. Mm -hmm. Like, the one of the cool kids, the mm -hmm. popular kids. I, I think... I think she's really... she's really well-written. That's, that's probably the way it is. Like, Brittany Murphy does a really good job. She's very cute in the role. I like her as... A character whose arc is tied to her getting a makeover, but it's not defined by it. I, I would agree with that. I think that, and and that's something that we can kind of talk into next, because the next thing I want us to look at is 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 the theming throughout, throughout Clueless. And one of the main ones is makeovers. Let's do a makeover. <gasps> no. No. Oh, come on, let us. Cher's main thrill in life is a makeover, okay? It gives her a sense of control in a world full of chaos. So the first makeover that happens in this movie is between two teachers. So Twink Kaplan and Wallace Shawn are kind of like the, the schluppy teachers in school. But also mean and give bad grades. Wallace Shawn gives bad grades. He gives a C. Cranky. I think he gives a C plus, which I, that was a normal grade for me <laughs> <laughs> so yeah he's and that's the other thing too is when they say things like shares ditzy it's like she's talking about a c bringing down her whole average like if your average is brought down by a c you're probably getting a's oh yeah they show her report card and i think she had all a's except for like a b yeah so share share is bright she knows what she's doing um so yes in order to combat him giving out bad grades because he's cranky 
Um, she gives Miss Geist a makeover and plays a little bit of matchmaker, and it's successful. I mean, in terms of a makeover, what do they do? They take her glasses off? I mean, kind of. That's it. It's like that. It's like the 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 not another teen movie makeover. It's like ugh, glasses and a ponytail. <laughs> I think when it comes to the Miss Geist character, I mean the 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 first real physical description is they talk about her having like runs in her stockings and her slip is showing and her makeup or her lipstick's always on her teeth, and these are things that when fixed, I don't view them as like oh you're you're giving them a makeover. I see them as, like, you're helping somebody improve upon what they're already trying to do. Because it'd be, it'd be really easy to be like, oh, she's changing everything about her. No, she's not changing everything about her. She's just kind of cleaning it up a little bit. She's, like she's, she's getting those rough edges out. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of just like polishing those rough edges. It's like when, when kids start doing makeup for the first time, and they watch a YouTube video, and they don't know how to blend something, and then it just looks like they painted it with finger paints. It's like, okay, I see what you're doing. Let me, let me help you. You're not trying to like change them. You're just trying to show them the techniques to improve upon what they're already trying to do. See, and that's where I think this movie does makeovers very well, as opposed to every makeover I ever got in my life. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about that. So talk about makeovers that you have gotten in your life. Uh... All right, so obviously as as a trans woman, I have had a number of people like try and be be the good Samaritan that's going to help me put my put myself together. And sometimes they had ulterior motives. Like when I had people come up to me and say, "Oh my god, like here, let me how about you just hang out with me and like we'll meet up at my apartment and I'll teach you how to to do like your eyebrows better and like how to how to put on like, whatever, and I would show up. Now that we've got all that done, may I interest you in some Mary Kay? Oh my god, that is like the hey ladies Facebook message you get when somebody's trying to sell you essential oils or fucking leggings or something. Thankfully no one does that for me in my hometown. I don't have any <laughs> have any tenure high school people trying to come for me. Oh god, yeah. <laughs> Death to MLMs, like... On this podcast, we not to, we try not to shame anybody. I will absolutely shame you if you're in an MLM. Like, get out of this pyramid scheme. Come out. Yeah. And then on the other side, I have people who have offered to give me, like, makeover tips that usually I, I didn't ask for, but, you know, mm -hmm. early on. Early mm -hmm. on, you know, you, you will ask for the, or you'll accept the help of people who clearly have been doing this longer than you, because mm -hmm. that seems reasonable. And then they'll do my makeup, like how they do their makeup, and my face is quite a bit different than theirs, and it does not work. Like, I've got some powerful jaw and cheekbones already. I do not need to accent those any further. <laughs> you do. You have very powerful features, which is why I think you're so attractive, but... It's, it's those harsh masculine features. <laughs> um, but I'm glad that you brought up the the concept behind these people giving you a makeover that are essentially just doing their look um, onto your face. Because Cher doesn't do that to Ty. She sort of takes Ty and pushes her a little bit out of that comfort zone. Um, when we first see her, she's got that, like, you know, that, that cheaply red-dyed hair that washes out immediately. That, that Kool-Aid hair. Yeah, the, the Kool-Aid dyed hair that washes out immediately the second they do their little their little makeover scene. She's got oversized, really baggy clothes, and... She doesn't, but for all intents and purposes, she is wearing a shirt with three howling wolves on it. <laughs> right, yeah, she's got a three-wolf moon. I mean, she's not, but yes. Oh, uh, it's, it's totally that. Or like, <laughs> or like, paint, uh, like a water-painted horse on her shirt. It's that look. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So she's got that going on for her. And to me, when I, you know, when when I see her, I see somebody who is absolutely um, either trying to be as invisible as possible or just trying to have like the absolute comfort. So when Cher starts this makeover, they they try a variety of different things. First off, when Cher does her makeup, it is makeup that is very good for Brittany Murphy. It is not makeup that is good for Alicia Silverstone. And I appreciate that. She's working with her features. She's making sure she looks good. Mm -hmm. um, 
and then there's that moment where she she turns a polo into a crop and Brittany Murphy's like immediately grabs at her waistline is like nope not doing this and when you know she has her big reveal at school on on Monday I assume it's a Monday you know she's still wearing like a long sleeve sweater and it's it's kind of conservative compared to the stuff that Sharon Dion wear and to me that says that she's helping her feel a little bit more confident get out of kind of those clothes that are meant to hide her but still not forcing her to be like Cher Jr. Yeah she's just she's doing those like queer eye kind of makeovers where it's getting you out of like your your slump where you just put on the same things over and over again and it's like hey let's just work with what you got let's work in your style and just make sure you're not wearing the same shirt you've been wearing for eight years. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is, that is one of the stronger aspects. And yet that's one of the things that I think this movie gets criticized for a lot is, oh, you know, she changed Brittany Murphy and like, what was wrong with Brittany Murphy? And, you know, they told her that she couldn't have a crush on this boy. Instead, she had to like this boy. And while, yeah, that's a fair criticism, that's also kind of the point uh-huh. uh especially for for Cher's growth so yeah I mean I guess you can argue that you know it, it takes Brittany Murphy getting heartbroken for Cher to realize that you know she's she's not always right yeah but I mean that's that's Cher's arc mm-hmm. like at the start of the movie she's doing her quote-unquote like high school humanitarian work by giving makeovers and trying to like play matchmaker and then at the end she's actually doing things Mm -hmm. like she joins like greenpeace or whatever right yeah she yeah she starts she's the president of the pismo beach like relief fund yeah she's donating skis and caviar and (laughs) And things that are probably a little more useful than that (laughs) yeah and 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 yeah her her arc with with ty is that Cher is Cher is a victim of good intentions more than anything. Um, Her heart is in the right place. The impact is not always well-received. But I think that that's also, that's part of growing up, Uh, especially when you're a teenager. I mean, we all think that we know what the fuck we're doing, and we don't. Oh, no. No teen. I look at people who who come into my bar at 21, and they think they know shit. I didn't know shit at 21. I guarantee you don't. (laughs) <laughs> Much less 15-year-olds. And, like, that's not to say that there's, that, you know, there, there isn't power in youth and that there aren't people who who can make, like, really good and important changes. I mean, like, I look at, like, a, like a Greta Thunberg who's, you know, a 16-year-old and is one of the biggest climate change, you know, activists in the world. Like, obviously, yes, but there are still some, th- some things that we have to learn along the way. And yeah, it's experience and, like, worldviews. Absolutely. Like, you, you develop, you learn by doing. <laughs> absolutely. And there's also this this idea of, I, I think we, we as a society, we have a tendency to look at, like, youth and, like, high school and think, like, oh, these, you know, idealist morons, like, they don't know what's coming to them. But this whole idea of, like, being an idealist moron or needing to learn more or needing to do more, like, that doesn't stop ever. Like, there's no point where we get to our lives and we're like, that's it. I've learned everything that I need to know. Like, we're constantly learning and we're constantly... There's always going to be something that we're not going to know. Um, The only difference is that we've made it okay to sort of, like, judge teenagers for not knowing things and then for adults were sort of complacent in not knowing things. Oh yeah, I mean, that's the world we live in right now, which is a bummer. But personally, I love watching Zoomers roast millennials for saying dumb shit like adulting and fighting over Harry Potter houses. It's it's one of my favorites. They think it's the dumbest thing ever, and I love it. I mean, because they're right. Yes. (laughs) And and I think that that's a really, a really good point to bring up because like we can sit here and be like, yeah, Cher doesn't know shit about shit. But then at the same time, it's like, yeah, we don't either though. So like no one can really sit here and be like, oh, look at this person. Like, no, none of us know shit. Like we're all idiots. We will all die in as old age, not knowing shit. And that's fine. The difference is we just need to like accept that that's fine. Always try to be better. Even if you're, even if you suck, you can always try to be better. That's the goal. (laughs) Cher, get in here. What's up, Daddy? What the hell is that? A dress. Says who? 
Calvin Klein. It looks like underwear. Go upstairs and put something over it. Okay, so let's look at the next sort of section of this movie. Most teen movies, or just, I guess, movies in general, tend to have, like, one central conflict that they have to get over, and that's the whole driving force of the movie, is you want to get this done, and we have to get to point A to get to point B that gets X done, and then D, we're done. Uh, Clueless does not function like that. Clueless is sort of a... I mean, it's a movie that takes place um, around kind of an entire school year, and there's not one central issue. It's something happens that inspires something else happening that inspires something else happening, um, which is a very unique form of storytelling, I think, at least, um, in terms of teen movies especially, which tend to follow kind of this ABC formula. Mm -hmm. But what Clueless does, I think, better than most teen movies, and this is obviously just my opinion, so feel free to tell me to fuck off into the sun if I'm wrong, but I feel as if Clueless kind of nails teenage interactions and relationships better than most movies. I could say that. There's a lot of things that are um, not not good about this movie. Like, there's there's a little, like... Well, there's some language, for example, mm -hmm. like they use the R word a lot, but that's not, that's not inauthentic. It's not right, but it's correct for 1995. And I, that's another thing that I think sometimes a lot of people um, struggle with is accepting that sometimes the language that happens in movies from, you know, 20, 30 years ago, while it is not excusable and it was wrong then and it's wrong now, that was so normalized. Oh, yeah. It's the same way as, like, I don't know, I probably got it a lot more than you did because I was bullied. But uh, I had so many people, for the faintest things, tell me that what I was doing was gay and that was a synonym for dumb. Right. And, yeah, I, I got that a little bit, but it was definitely more so... Gay was never meant to be, like, they weren't saying, like, something was actually homosexual. They were saying that... But they would for me. Well... You got a, you got a <laughs> hot dog at lunch? That's gay. Yeah, I don't know what, like, boys' fascination with oh, things being gay. Teen boys are little sociopaths, and I just cannot wait for the circumstances to come up where I get to share stories about <laughs> my high school. Because we're eventually, I can imagine, we're going to have little little bits of the other side of the coin come in. <laughs> yeah, I think once we start getting into, like, the she's the man and just one of the guys things, I think those will, those conversations will start to come out. Oh, boy, howdy. <laughs> but, but, yeah, like, they, they drop the R word a few times in a few different ways, and they're never using it in the sense to be, like, outwardly offensive towards... Um, anybody in kind of like the the differently abled community but it's it's, it's vernacular it was that vernacular at the time and i think what we need to start doing is instead of being like oh well they said this therefore they're bad people or they're bad characters it's like this is this is a real big product of what we as a culture used to normalize and it's also proof that like we don't have to normalize this kind of behavior because we don't do this anymore and the you know the impact has not been lost by suddenly not being offensive mm -hmm. um well that and i think the other glaring thing this movie does that's a bit i don't know i guess it's not bad it's just normal for teens is the sort of classism of everything oh yeah where, i think where you live is a specific judging factor or even like where you're stationed in like the quad where like, right. oh, the burnouts and the skaters go hang out on that hill and you don't go near them because they're freaking, they're toxic waste or whatever. Right. And I think the classism thing is unavoidable, <laughs> not just because that they're in Beverly Hills, because it would be very, That's very part of it. <laughs> yeah, they would it would be very easy to write this off as like, well, of course there's classism, like they're rich people in Beverly Hills. But this sort of separation, um, exists everywhere yeah. um especially in like a clicky high school environment absolutely how was your high school in terms of like cliques and i, I don't want to say like in classism but i guess in classism um how um, was that experience i mean i'm from a pretty pretty level ohio suburb not to not to say where i'm from and roast it too hard but it sucks <laughs> and i i remember everyone being largely the same kind of like 
middle class thing. Like there was some lower middle class and there was some upper middle class, but most people were primarily in the the same ballpark. I was on the lower end. But I think it mostly broke up into by the by the mid two thousands it was mostly two categories. Which, you know, you obviously had your popular kids and your not popular kids and then your band kids and your burnouts and whatever. But it was mostly like the alternative emo kids and then the preppy kids. And that's kind of was the large divide. People just mostly hated, like, judged each other, but it didn't, it didn't really escalate past that. It's just like, ooh, you shop at Abercrombie. It's like, ooh, why are you wearing socks on your arms? <laughs> socks on your arms was definitely a look. In Black the... and white striped socks on your arms, too. Yeah, that was definitely a look in kind of that mid, mid to late 2000s. Um, I don't know, for mine, because I grew up in, like, the Chicagoland area where... In our school's, I don't know, division, conference, whatever you want to call it, we were the quote-unquote poor school, um, which could also be read as we were the school that had students of color um, compared to the schools that surrounded us, which they had the money, they had um, you know, pretty much exclusively white um, athletic teams. Uh, we were the underfunded school. Were you, by chance, the school that the neighboring schools would steal their cheer routines from. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to use teen movie lingo, then yes, my school is the East Compton Clovers and everyone else were the Rancho Carne Toros, um, which brought in itself like a whole other mess of issues. Um, but there, there was a pretty big wealth, uh, just like there, there's a pretty big wealth gap at our school because you either had zero dollars or you had like a decent amount but i wouldn't say anybody at our school was rich if you were rich you just transferred to one of the other schools um but those those issues were very prominent just in things like oh i i can't go to the field trip because i i don't have the money for it or you know we had kids that were on free lunch like a majority of schools on free lunch and then the kids that weren't um but clicks that's where the power was because it's it's hard to be classist against people when you're all for the most part around the same and those who weren't part of that like financial bracket they were the ones that just like they just didn't associate with anybody but themselves they were the one percent yeah they were the one percent so they were kind of on their own um but with everybody else it was it was pretty clicky um so yeah, you don't you don't need to have money to be judgmental towards each other, and I definitely think that that's that's just sort of like a survival technique of teenage life. Like you have to find your people that that you jive with. You need to find your support system, and in high school, it tends to be things like mutual interests. So like the burnouts. I I mean, I feel like in my high school, things were broken down to the simple thing of like. Oh, I also eat animal crackers sometime in first grade. We're going to be friends forever. <laughs> well, because did you go to one of the schools where, like, the kids you went to high school with were, for the most part, like, kids that you probably went to elementary school with as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, okay. it was it was like we lived in a bubble. Gotcha. Yeah, so ours... people decided whether they liked you or didn't when they decided that kids were weird or not in, like, third grade, and then that reputation stayed with you forever. Ugh, Unless you, like, transcended weird kid and joined, like, the football team or something. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, that's... Ours were, like, our high school was comprised of a bunch of different um, city schools, like elementary school and junior high. So we were we all went from our different places, and then once you hit high school, like, it was a fucking free-for-all. It was... I'm very grateful for, <laughs> for that experience, because if I had to be exclusively in high school with kids that I've known since I was five, I probably would have... It, just, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have been good for me. Um, but what Clueless does do good... Does is, do good. What, what does do good um, is, is kind of showcasing these relationships. I mean, we, we did... Talk, we talked about, like, the critical lens of the stuff that it, you know, feeds into as far as, like, cliques and stereotypes. But let's talk about how these characters communicate with each other. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, in the most literal terms of communication... They have such hip lingo, which I think the truly the hippest lingo is is Christian's stuff, where he's talking about crab cakes or whatever, because he's oh, a, he calls it a clam bake. Clam bakes, where he's a where he's a rad fifties greaser, but I, I don't think his stuff is aged honestly that much worse than the nineties lingo in a very literal sense. 
but as far as they communicate, like, in general, I think that they actually are much better at it than most teens. I, I would agree with you. The... Like, one of the lines that I remember that was the one that stuck out the most was when uh, Donald Faison's character is, is yelled at for, for calling Dion, calling her woman again. And then, I don't remember what he says, but he basically, like, totally, like, college-level argues back. Oh, when he talks about how, you know, the, the slang terms for women tend to have negative connotations, but they're not being used in inher- inherently misogynistic ways. Yes, which for, like, <laughs> a character that's honestly treated like an idiot, that is, like, very profound out of nowhere, and it was really funny. And I, I, I love that because that's definitely the, the kind of... I don't want to call it therapy talk, but there's a lot of therapy talk in Clueless where somebody gets in trouble for something or there's some sort of conflict. And when they're resolving it, they're acknowledging each other's feelings. They're acknowledging like how what they said may have come off. They're they're holding themselves accountable, which is like unheard of in teen movies. Yeah. Like after that, um, after that fight that Brittany Murphy has with Cher, like they communicate about it like a week passes and then they run into each other and they talk it out very nicely now i granted like i think high school kids in general are kind of fickle but usually they just ignore that it happened like they pretend it didn't this they actually talked about it and why why it was wrong and like hey i forgive you and it was a very nice refreshing interaction especially since a lot of movies that emphasis on emphasize on teen girls there's a lot of girl fighting. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously things like Heathers or Mean Girls, which is, like, literal girl fighting. But it's nice that it's very women supporting women in that sense. I agree with you. I think that it's it's very refreshing um, to see these two characters who, in any other movie, it would be, like, this big blowout and the whole school would be gossiping about it. But the movie allows them to all kind of deal with their conflicts on their own terms. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that it's done in such a way that feels natural for all of the characters because these characters really do care pretty deeply about each other. Um, I really enjoy the interactions between Cher and Josh, and I know that their relationship in general sort of has this, like, weird like Brady Bunch movie um, (laughs) Greg and Marsha sort of thing since they're former step-siblings but I love the way that they communicate because they're both very honest with each other and they pick on each other but in a way that never feels malicious. No I mean that's just what good siblings do not like my brother and I growing up but (laughs) like this is like playful in a way that they're not trying to be too shitty towards each other they're just being like oh, you're my sibling and I'm kind of annoyed by you, but like, whatever, we're, we're, we love each other. I want to do something good for humanity. How about sterilization? (laughs) Right, exactly. And I think that, you know, obviously they weren't siblings for very long and they've developed sort of this, you know, this friendship before obviously they realize that they, they like each other and the way that they communicate, I think, really reflects that. I think that they're both at their most authentic when they're around each other because whether, you know, the characters will admit it or not, I mean, when Josh is at college and when he's around um, the girlfriend character that he has briefly, um, you know, he's he's kind of a different person. Mm-hmm. He's a little bit more um, pretentious. Yeah, you can definitely see him, like, mellow out as, like, the movie goes on because he's not at college. Like, he shaves that shitty goatee off (laughs) that he has for a single scene where he's reading Nietzsche by the pool. Right. And it's just, he's wearing all black and he's got his sunglasses on. He just looks like a doucher. Right. And then, like, with Cher, I mean, she is, she's a little bit less afraid to... She's not trying to keep up appearances. Like, obviously, she takes great value in... Um, how she presents herself to the world. Like, even when they're, you know, eating, I think they're eating, like, cheese balls or whatever and watching TV, she's brushing her hair and he makes the comment about how much she grooms herself. And, you know, that's part of her personality. She cares about her appearances, but she's also at the same time not trying to be, like, super impressive in front of him. Yeah. I mean, there's also a point where they, like, 
get takeout or whatever and they're just chilling and she's like oh i don't know what it is about my normal clothes i think they're too constricting and i'm like yeah you wear like cute skin tight everythings that show off your belly button and <laughs> like now you're wearing like comfy pajamas of course you're more comfortable now <laughs> yeah and I, I just think that they do a really good job at showing how they communicate um one of the the communication channels and the relationships that i love um and granted it's a personal reason but i love oh. the relationship Cher has with her dad you love that dad so much because he is so much like your dad. <laughs> I know. He, he is my dad. Um, yeah, he, he reminds me a lot. Um, Mel reminds me a lot of my dad in that he is very no-nonsense, very matter-of-fact, um, to the point where everything that he says can seem aggressive, or if you don't know him very well, you might think that he's being mean. I mean, he's screaming in the background on the phone constantly throughout the movie. So. Right. <laughs> because he has a high-pressure job, and, like, my yeah. dad had a high-pressure job, so I, I really relate to that. But more so, it's it's the moment when they're sitting together and she talks about, you know, is there is there something you've never been able to, like, argue your way out of, or, like, you know... Um, I don't remember the exact wording. He's doing his lawyer thing. Yeah, he's he's doing his lawyer thing, and she brings up about how she thinks a guy might not like her. And without missing a beat, he's like, well, then this this boy is a fool because you're the most beautiful girl in Beverly Hills. And obviously, like, there's this obligatory sense that, like, well, of course all dads think that about their daughters. But when you listen to how he talks to her, it's like, no, you, he believes that. Like, he loves his daughter. Yeah. And cares about her and wants her to be happy. Like, he's, he's tough with her and he's, you know, a very tough guy, but you see that, that sentimental feeling he has for her and you know he he compares her to her late mother and like that's such a beautiful moment and mm -hmm. i love that interaction well i i like it because like it really points out that he is a cranky ball busting lawyer but i feel like one he has a high pressure job yes obviously but he's not attending to his children constantly because he doesn't care it's I think he recognizes that Cher is very independent and doesn't need him, but... Oh, absolutely. When he needs to be a dad, he's very good at being a dad. Oh, yeah. I mean, he even identifies that Cher is sort of this independent presence. He's like, you take care of me. You take care of everyone in this family. Yeah, she yells at him about his cholesterol because he eats nothing but meat all day. <laughs> Which is a problem that my dad also has. Yeah, we ate a lot of sausages last time yeah, we saw we them. Did. Oh, oh, yes, yes, we did. Oh, Italians. Um, I just, also, like, on a, on a personal, you're like, oh, this, this is personal because it reminds me of my dad. I was like, yeah, it reminds me of your dad, too, because there's that scene where he meets Christian and goes, oh, I've got a 42 and a shovel, and I guarantee no one will miss you. And that's the kind of stuff your dad jokes about with me all the time. I know. My dad has that, like, he has that love of being Italian and that love of mafia and... That's that's his jammy jam. Yes, your dad was drinking on Father's Day and sending threatening Godfather quotes <laughs> at me for like hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's sort of his style. And the thing is, he does it and just laughs the whole time. Oh, like, I was knows. loving it too, but it was just <laughs> and it just kept going. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that. Okay, so thank you for bringing up that connection because it also brings up a character that we really haven't done a lot of discussion about, um, which is Christian and. Clueless does something really special, I think, with Christian, and that he's a character that you can either like or think is a total like, like he's a total wiener because oh, he's such a wiener because like he likes you know he he likes listening to 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 jazz and blues music and he uses lingo that, from that's like, generous. He likes crooner music. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but he he speaks you know. In, in, like, Rat Pack era lingo, and he drives old cars, and um, he's he's kind of dramatic. Um, Does his leather jacket make me look like James Dean? <laughs> yeah. James Dean or Jason Priestley. Um, and those aspects of his character are what we judge him by. So when it's later revealed that he's gay... You know, we've already made up our minds about this character and his queerness has nothing to do with our impressions of him. And I think that that's really, really cool because that doesn't happen a lot in teen movies. I think it's very much like, and this is the gay character. Um, and his traits are that he's gay. 
Right. Like Christian. That, that's his personality. Christian has interests. We know he likes Tony Curtis movies. We know he likes, you know, old music. Um, he, he likes dancing. He, you know, he does a lot of things other than he really likes to bring over copies of Some Like It Hot for his friend <laughs> who does not know he's gay. Right. <laughs> and and I like the way that they handle his his gayness in it in that. You know, when Cher finds out, it's not this kind of disgusted, like, oh my god, I can't believe I almost had sex with a gay person. She she has her, oh my god, I almost had sex with him, because, like, no, oh, he didn't. doesn't like me. She didn't almost have sex with him. Right. But that's her, <laughs> but that's her, her, in her mindset, when she's talking to Dee, I'm like, Dee, I almost had sex with him. And she's upset because he's not interested in her. Not because he's gay. And, and you, what's 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 Donald Faison's line about that he's oh, he's a cake boy <laughs> he's a cake boy he's a disco dancing Oscar Wilde reading Streisand ticket holding friend of Dorothy I like most of those things right and I am not a cake boy and in all of those and sure yeah the argument can be made like those are stereotypes like yeah of course obviously they're fucking stereotypes yeah but it's better than just but, saying he's a homo or you know worse <laughs> yeah like they're not calling him a homo they're not using the f slur they're using these like very sort of you know creative ways to describe him and even when he tells Cher like he's gay they're not doing it in like a in a discriminatory way or in like a negative way. They're not trying to be like, oh my god, I can't believe you did this because he's gay. They're like, no, he just is gay, and like yeah. I, I can't believe you didn't see this. Like he's gay. Yeah, and, and then we move on. Yeah, and then we Sunrise, move on. Sunset. Yep, we move on. They're friends. They they go shopping together. They have a good time, and I like that they do that. And there's there's a couple other moments where they talk about queer, queerness. So one there's the gym teacher played by Julie Brown, and they talk about how she might be same-sex oriented. Um, in she the... wears a suit at the wedding at the I end. I know, she really does. Like, in the in the grand tradition of, you know, female PE teachers, she's same-sex oriented, which I think is, like, a really cute joke. Like, obviously, there are plenty of gym teachers who are not gay, and, like, being a gay woman does not mean that you're a gym teacher. Um, but, like, no, that's... you can be a lunch lady, too. <laughs> But it's like, it's like a, such a playful and innocent way to be like, yeah, you know, this, it is what it is. She's gay. Okay, moving on. She's not an option for, you know, this matchmaking teacher thing we want to do. And again, it's not a, a way to like discriminate against her. They're just acknowledging it in kind of like a creative like way that a teenager would, which I like. Um, but the other moment is one that I find particularly interesting, which is when Brittany Murphy first meets... Um, when Ty, sorry, when Ty first meets... I'm wearing off on you. I know. When Ty first meets Sharon Dion, um, and they're talking about giving her this makeover and wanting to kind of, like, take her under their wing and acclimate her to the school, um, she makes a comment, like, I've never had straight friends before. And Sharon Dion take that as her talking about, like, sexuality. Oh, and I had to double check with you, because I read that as, like... Oh, friends who, like, just don't do drugs. Which, you're right. That's... Which is, that's... <laughs> but I was like, is that what she means? Because, like, that's how I read it, and they're giving it the side eye. Yeah, that's what... So that's what Ty was meaning. Ty was meaning, like, oh, that you don't do drugs in the same sense of, like, uh, when she's talking about herbal refreshments, and, you know, she mentions uh, all the things that they have and shares... Who's got Coke? <laughs> she's like, you guys got Coke here? Well, yeah, it's America. And, you know, shares blissfully ignorant and thinking that she's talking about coca-cola and not drugs um so yes when ty says i've never had straight friends or four she's clearly referring to people who don't do drugs but because that is not a world that sharon dion are you know intimately familiar with yeah they're, they're goody goodies <laughs> yeah they're... like i was a goody goody <laughs> who learned from dare i didn't learn from dare but I nobody learns does. from dare no dare's counterproductive <laughs> McGruff the sky, crime dog. He's a bastard. <laughs> All cops are bastards, including Paw Patrol. Oh, um, but <laughs> so cute though. But when when Ty <laughs> says that, they don't make like they make a face, but the face they make is not one of like, ugh, I can't believe she only has gay friends. It's a face of like, oh, that's a weird thing. I I don't. You can you can see them kind of process over their head like. That's weird to not have any straight girlfriends, but okay. And then they immediately she, she are like, was very sure. casual, and that's that's the lesbian thing, right? Allegedly. Right, right, right. So, like, I think that that's really, really interesting. That in these ways that are not necessarily like overt, like eh, I mean, I guess they're overt, but I guess they're not like saying it out loud in dialogue. 
these characters are showing that they are affirming of queerness, and I think that's really cool. Um, it was the 90s. What a wild time. I know. <laughs> because I think that, you know, when we start to look at films um, maybe closer to now, um, especially in sort of like the late 2000s into like the 2010s, we're going to start seeing um, where where the queerness becomes a punching bag again. Oh, yeah. And it's very, very strange to see, you know, a, a movie from from the 90s like be better about its representation of queer people than movies that are closer to now well i mean this was probably around the same year that like big drag movies were coming out and everything yeah oh like, yeah that's a really good point i, I think tu wong fu came out probably also in 95 yeah that's... if not certainly around that time yeah so that's, that's a really good point it's just social change yeah. which was nice considering all of the the damnation of the AIDS <laughs> crisis unfortunately yeah so so uh we got, we got about two more things to kind of cover on this film. So the question that I have for you, um, what messages do you take away from watching Clueless? Like, not necessarily what they were going for, but when you watch this, like, what do you take away from it? So what do you think? I'm amazed. That I'm devoting myself so generously to someone else? No. That you found someone even more clueless than you are to worship you. I think the first thing I notice about Clueless is just how much of a of a culture it created in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, by, by, by the time this was coming out, grunge was dying. Like, that was mm -hmm. one of the prevalent fads of the 90s. And by this point, like, it created, or at least I guess, like, per perpetuated the polished, preppy mall scene mm -hmm. that became very popular in the 90s or at least i remember like the mall was the thing and obviously that, it was in the 80s too yeah but it was like it's it was very in the different 80s. in the 90s too stemmed in the 80s perfected in the 90s that's yes. what i would like to say yeah so it was like a totally different beast by then so like i noticed all of the the cultural things of mm -hmm. clueless first like the the music the styles the lingo the fact that alicia silverstone probably should have been like a superstar and she, she Molly Ringwald, unfortunately. Oh, I'll never forgive people for that, because she is a treasure. Yeah. So, like, that's my first takeaway. Second, um, I just think that the writing is really good. Mm -hmm. I think it's very smartly written, and generally when things are, you know, quote-unquote marketed towards girls or teen girls, it's, there's not necessarily any sort of expectation of standard. Like, there's a lot of bad girl media mm -hmm. and when it's done very well typically when women are in charge of it mm -hmm. it's so much more evident i i agree with you completely i think there's this really unfortunate trend or honestly just belief system that if something is inherently quote-unquote for girls that that means that it's bad or lesser than and i oh, think yeah. that that covers everything not even just media I, I, I got in the biggest argument on twitter one time about people who are shitting on white claw and they're talking mm -hmm. about how like white claw is like this terrible thing it's the worst thing we hate it it's bad anyone who drinks it sucks and in my head i was like you're you're against white claw because your brain is associating it with femininity because mm -hmm. this isn't a beer this isn't a man's drink this is white claw that's for sissies and pansies and women and we believe that anything feminine is bad. And yeah, that's toxic masculinity oh, in action. yeah. Like, I don't know what it says about me as a trans person, but I like the bastard concoction of Bud Light Seltzer. So I'm getting best of both worlds. <laughs> I, th I think that's just reflective of the fact that you have bad taste. I mean, you are married to me, so you have the worst taste, objectively. Um, rude. Don't talk about my <laughs> wife like that. And also, it's because it's malty, and I like malt beer. <laughs> That's true. I can't. I can't handle the malt. It tastes too. It tastes too thick. I like. I like the white claw. Cause... I like thickness. Look at you. Oh, uh, you know what? That's also fair. I can't fight you on that. So, <laughs> I guess that kind of like leads into how we're gonna kind of end um, every episode. I want you to tell me about like as somebody who came into girlhood on their own terms. How does the girlhood in Clueless um, impact you and your and your experiences with girlhood? 
I think when it comes to like girlhood or womanhood or femininity in general, something that I really, really hold to heart is that I love to see capable and strong women, particularly if they are feminine. Okay. Like usually, and this is part of my brain too, but it could just be the, the queer part. Mm-hmm. But when I think of like strong women, my brain goes to like literal strong women, like Xena warrior princess. Okay. Like there's that, but once like, that's my gut instinct. But once you boil past that, there's plenty, uh, I, there's plenty to be said about capable women like, you know, Cher or like in Legally Blonde where they are hyper femme. They're essentially like a Barbie type, mm-hmm. but they are self-sufficient, managing their business, literally or figuratively. Mm-hmm. And I just, there's, there's something that's so nice to see that mm-hmm. in any, any medium, but particularly in films where... Feminine women are seen as, like, lesser, like we talked about Mm -hmm. earlier, where it's like you look at children's media as an example, and it's like, Transformers are cool, Jem is bad. Right. It's like, no, Jem is cool, Jem's basically American Sailor Moon, who is also cool. (laughs) That's a a really good comparison, I like that a lot. (laughs) Um, I I share similar sentiments, um, because I think a lot of times... And, and it's and it's not even exclusively like a a male thought um, of of associating like hyper femme women as being lesser than because that's definitely an internalized misogyny thing as well. There's so much girl hate. I mean, look at the entire career of Megan Fox. How many uh. how many people, both men and women, hated her for no other reason than because she's she's hot because she's hot and because michael bay shot her like a porn yeah it's or a go daddy commercial it's it's oh god um but i i agree with you because when you think about like the the quote-unquote strong female characters that exist i don't think that a lot of people would go to share first when she absolutely is and we can see that um you know there there's the very very famous scene that you know sort of turned circus liquors into more of an iconic Los Angeles staple than it already is. Oh, that clown. That fucking clown. It's so iconic. I love it. But she gets mugged. She has a gun held to her head. And in any other movie, that might be, you know, the moment that kickstarts into an action film and now it's a revenge plot. Or it may, you know, completely traumatize the character to where they can't leave the house the next day. And to be fair, like, both of those responses, totally normal. But in terms of Cher her response to it is like th- like this is a huge inconvenience to her like she's more upset about you know losing her money in her phone and, and ruining lay, her laying dress laying down on the ground with her dress right and ruining her dress than she is about her life being threatened yes and, and also like something we didn't point out is like right before that she's basically getting like sexually harassed by Elton Who's a total fuckboy? Oh, God, yeah. Elton is... Ki- like, whenever people talk about, like, soft boys, like, he is the prototype for the fucking soft boy. Like, oh, I love my cranberry CD on the quad. Like, shut up, Elton. Yeah, but the cranberries are cool. Yeah, the cranberries are cool, but Elton's not cool. <laughs> yeah, well, the cranberries are not in charge of who listens to their music. You know, that's true. They have no say in that. <laughs> but to me, I think it's it's easy that people could say, like, oh, well, look, it proves that she's shallow. She cares more about her dress. I don't think that's what's happening in that situation. I think to me that is a symbol of somebody who is very very aware of the the dangers and the the threatened uh, experiences that exist for women and has sort of accepted that at this point. She's resilient. That's, yeah, she's that's, super that's resilient it. and like she's she she's like Ugh, like this is this is a thing that as women we deal with and you know she has that same sort of response to being sexually harassed like her her voiceover is like I was sexually harassed and then I was mugged and it's like yeah this is suck this sucks and this is shitty but she's like this is not going to be what defines me and I'm like that is so badass like yeah. and then they don't really and then it doesn't really affect her past that. No, not really. I mean, uh, Josh picks her up and he has kind of like a one-off joke when he's dropping off his girlfriend to be like, hey, don't get into any more trouble. That's just the 
fucking older brother. But yeah, to it's, say. it's like twerpy older brother kind of picking that's on her. Because, that's because Paul Rudd has looked the same and sounded the same since Clueless, which in my brain is just like, he's, he's giving her a dad speech. Yeah, I mean, I think we were talking about it in, in terms of, like, if you were to take scenes from Clueless and intercut them with, like, scenes from Knocked Up, um, I would have a hard time uh, kind of differentiating, like, outside of fashion. Like, it's just the same face. Yeah. I mean, he's slightly younger and doesn't quite have crow's feet, but, like, he looks the same. Yeah, he looks exactly the same. Um, <laughs> but I think that I think that Clueless is very emblematic of a very specific type of of girlhood and it's one that I don't think is is a bad thing and I, th- I wish that more people would would give this movie the respect that it absolutely deserves yeah I mean it's going to exist in the duality that like Barbie does where she's a capable career woman but also everyone criticizes her for her looks mm-hmm. even though they don't do that with G.I. Joe not all free soldier has a six-pack but <laughs> no yeah I, I'm I'm with you on that one and I mean there's plenty of arguments also to be made about like share and kind of the perpetuation of like white feminism like that. Yes. But that's an entirely that's different. That's not what this movie's about. Right. And this that's is about <laughs> her stepping into things as like a 15 year old, not for her where she's going to be when she's 25. Exactly. If we, if we get to see a return to Clueless with Alicia Silverstone, like, you know, as an adult and see like where share has gone, then we can start like really diving she into She becomes that. Leslie Nope. You know, <laughs> probably not quite that much. I don't know. I don't know if she'd go that far into her humanitarian. She's probably not that but... neurotic. She's not you. Oh, fair, fair point. Um, but yeah, I think that's 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 something to think about. So, in terms of in terms of our prom date, Clueless is asking you to prom harmony. Are you going to circle yes, no, or maybe? And are you going to write something cute on the note back? I will circle yes. And I, it will be a especially yes in the notes section if they have Mighty Mighty Boston's playing. <laughs> you know what? I think I think Clueless would say. I think Clueless would be pretty stoked on that for yeah. you. Yeah. Like some movies, I call them a one and done. No, I, I'd go back to Clueless. Good. Clueless is worth revisiting. Awesome. I love that. Well, all right, everybody. That is it for us today on This Ends at Prom. We want to... Thank, as always, our incredible platform host, Pod People. We also want to take this time to thank our incredible, wonderful, magical performers of our theme song that is titled by The Sonderbombs. You can find them on Spotify, Bandcamp, and you should buy all of their albums because they're awesome and queer and their music fucks really hard. You can find me, BJ Colangelo, on social media at BJ Colangelo. Harmony, where can people find you? I'm on social media as Velocitraptor. Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. Because I don't care that someone else took the non-underscored version of that. I liked the pun. I'm taking it. <laughs> awesome. And we will be back next week with a new movie to ask to prom. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.